Welcome to Elevate, the masterclass where we dissect the elements of exceptional achievement and lifestyle design with a focus on personal growth and real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Tyler Chesser. Elevate Nation, welcome back. This is Tyler Chester. I'm so thankful to have you here, and I'm blessed and grateful to be sitting with my friend, Mark Helm. Mark, how are you? I'm doing wonderful, Tyler. Good to be with you today. That's great to be with you, and I know the listeners are in for a treat because I've known Mark for a few years now, and I can tell you that he's the real deal. He knows what he's talking about, and he's a generous uh, individual sharing wisdom all the time and and really sharing opportunities uh, so frequently. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation And I want to welcome Elevate Nation back because it's time to take it to another level. We're absolutely going to be doing that today. I want to welcome you back to the show where our mission is to identify and apply how the best of the best raise the bar personally and professionally to achieve greatness in real estate and beyond. And I always say and beyond because real estate is a vehicle. It's the, you know, it's the means to the end. So what can we do to create systems through real estate to create things in our life and to create a fulfilling life. We're going to talk about the mindset, the habits, routines. We're going to talk about systems that Mark has developed over over his career and, and with other folks that he works with, tools that he utilizes to leverage other systems within his portfolio, within his life, within his business, and strategies and so much more because it's all about elevating to a life without limits and that's what we're all about on this show because it's a masterclass for leaders and those looking to achieve uncommon results and purposeful outcomes through real estate investing and ultimately in their lives. And that's such a long winded way for me to get the show started here, but I always have to do it. And, and I also, also have to remind you if you're enjoying what we're doing here on the show, we'd certainly be grateful if you gave us a rating, uh, a review and subscribe to the show. Uh, it definitely helps us because our mission is to reach millions of people with this message. And we're not going to stop until we get there. And maybe when we get to a million, Uh, We're going to go for our next million, and so we're really excited about that. But with all that said, let me introduce you to Mr. Mark Helm. He is the owner of Q2 Self Storage in Louisville, Kentucky, and he's also the author of Creating Wealth Through Self Storage and the creator of Storage World Analyzer, a cloud-based financial analysis software program, both of which are available through the Inside Self Storage store. He's also the creator of Quick Start Academy, which provides online training for small, small investors who want to break into the self-storage business or strategically grow an existing operation. Mark started working with the real estate investment trust in the mid-1990s to locate and purchase storage properties. He also learned the business. He began investing on his own and creating a strategic system of analyzing and buying facilities. So, Mark, uh, welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit more about yourself behind the bio. Well, it's great to be with you. And I really acknowledge you for the way you introduce and start this podcast off, especially in the real estate space, because I've always believed, I learned early on that if you want to grow professionally, first thing you do is work on yourself. Then you go out and create and learn and work on the systems because it's just who you are and who you're being that will generate your success, not what you know. So so true. I I really acknowledge you for that. I appreciate Um, that really. I mean, because sometimes we get lost. Sometimes we forget that, you know, it's, it's, it is more about ourselves than it is about, you know, the, the real estate tactics, but the real estate tactics tactics are obviously important, but, Mm-hmm. I appreciate you bringing that up. I'm looking forward to diving into both yeah. yourself. <clears throat> yeah, you got to know it, but that guarantees nothing. But um, anyway, I started um, uh, my real estate career. So I lost all visible means of support May 1, 1985, when I got my real estate license. Um, <laughs> so, um, and it's been a great career for me. So I got in real estate in the 80s. And like many people, I sold houses for a couple of years. And that just scared me to death. Uh, having a housewife in my car, showing her houses and trying to talk kitchens with her. And it was like I was like out of my element. And real quickly, I decided to uh, go into the commercial real estate and I started working for a developer and I learned how developers think and I sat in as they laid out their buildings and did the math on with a 
a calculator and a piece of paper and leased their space for them and really got uh, to learn how developers think. And uh, then I went into my own commercial real estate business. Uh, basically, I joined a REMAX commercial-only brokerage, and then I started a property management company. And we were managing primarily office space. We had, uh, I had a client list of people we'd sell office buildings to, and then we'd manage the buildings, lease the buildings, and reposition them, and then sell them, and keep rolling that money. And um, I thought we were pretty good at it. We had about an 80% renewal rate in the management business. You're measured by how much you renew. And that's what I was doing when I got my CCIM designation. And within less than a month of me getting that designation, that's when I got the call from the acquisition developer of a storage REIT asking me if I could help him find self-storage in our marketplace. Now, you're an agent. If you get a call, usually there's one answer. If somebody asks you if you can help them find space. And, of course, it was yes. And uh, at that time, you know, I was in the, quote, office management business. We had Yardy for our software. We used Argus to help create the projections for our clients. And when I, and I, my relationship to self-storage was, this is a probably, I didn't know much about it, but I thought it was a simple little business for, you know, simple people and surely I can help this guy. So that was my attitude when I went out and started working with this uh, director. And it did not take me long to really see what self-storage was. And in essence, if you think about it, storage is what? It's a steel wall and a concrete floor. That's a lot like the warehouses we rent, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, so back then, warehouses were getting about $3.50 a square foot. If it was a flex space, we'd get about 10 bucks a foot back then, 10 to 12 for the office, and 350 to 4 for the warehouse. And when I went out with this REIT, I was seeing 950 a foot for non-climate control, 12, 13 a foot for climate control. But what I really saw was there were no commissions. There was no tenant improvement cost. There was the very few capital expenses you can project in literally a 12 to 15 cent a square foot per year reserve fund covers any capital expense you'll need. And what I saw was these guys could uh, project their cash flow extremely accurately. Now, in the office business, I was really getting the difference between a good NOI and distributable cash flow. Because you can have a great NOI and have to pump money into the project to keep it running. If you've got a large amount of TI or commissions due in a year, and uh, it, I, I was love managing offices, but I was clear that was not something I wanted to be in. And uh, when I really got what storage was, it was like, how can a guy like me get in that business? Mm -hmm. So by the late 1999 is when I, did my first deal and got into business. So 21 years ago. Now, would you say that the question of how do I get into the self-storage business is the same answer as it was then to as it is now? Uh, some of the tactics and strategies are different. It's a different industry than it is now, but basically, yes, because, um, you know, I, I work with a lot of small investors and have a lot of training and teaching material. And like we were talking about, what I see the difference of people who are successful really it is not a function of what they know. It's a function of how they relate to success, how they relate to money. Um, you got to know the stuff, but it's the mindset that makes the difference between success or failure. Hmm. And uh, so we work a lot on that as well as what you need, and you have to know it. But in, in the late 1990s and early 2000s, self-storage was a still and still is a fairly new product. 
Uh, banks back then were hesitant on loaning on it. I can remember Traeger, the owner of one of the local banks here, telling us they will never loan on self-storage. It's a specialty product. If we have to take it back, we couldn't resell it for anything else but storage. And, of course, we've gotten many loans from since then on storage. Once they really got it, self-storage is the lowest foreclosed on asset class that there is. Interesting. And the reality is you basically get apartment type rents for a steel wall and a concrete floor. Right. And no toilets and no, you know, folks who are messing up your units and all these different things. I mean, I'm a multifamily guy and I can see the benefits there from so many different angles. Right. And um, right. the other thing too, is that it seems to be, you know, one of the most recession resistant asset classes out there, as you just mentioned, it's the lowest foreclosure rate. Would you agree to that? I mean, is there any other asset class that you'd say is more resistant to a challenging environment? self-storage? Absolutely not. And that's what's had self-storage become known during the 2008-2009 downturn. That's when self-storage really shined. And uh, that's after the recovery started, Wall Street started chasing it. And that's when all the money started pouring in it. And that's why you now see self-storage going up, quote, everywhere. So if if you think of self-storage like the, in a life cycle, and you think of the life cycle of a human being, we're probably um, young adults are at the end of the teenage years. We're not, it, it's not an infant anymore, mm-hmm. but it's, it's not fully developed. In the self-storage space, still today, only 20% of all facilities are owned by REITs or larger companies. 62% of all self-storage facilities are owned by someone who just owns one facility. So there's a lot of consolidation that's going to be going on in the next decade, which creates huge opportunities for small investors like us. What, Mm -hmm. for example, our business strategy is simply because I'm a real estate guy and I work with REITs, we buy the mom and pop facilities and basically reposition them or expand them and get them to institutional grade so that when it's our time to exit, we can sell to these REITs and Why? Well, because they pay the most. Now, that's certainly not the only strategy, but it's a good strategy. And so many of these facilities are not, I mean, how you operate a facility in this century is way different than how you operated it in the 80s or 90s. So a lot of what we see is that people who own these for a while, they get very complacent because it cash flows well. And what we do is reposition these things. Even if we're not going to expand it and sell it to a REIT, you can reposition these facilities and bring them into this century and generate a lot more cash flow off the same tenant base that you have. So I think storage has a very bright like next decade or so. so the other thing that's interesting is uh, when I was looking at it early in my career. 1995 is when I went out with that uh, director for the REIT. And back then, it was like 7 to 8% of the population had ever used self-storage. Then in 2010, it was like 9 to 10%. Well, what happens if, I haven't seen the stat for 2020 yet, but what if it's 12%? What if it's 14%? Not only is the population growing, but a larger and larger percent of people are going to start using self-storage. And when I, you ask about it being recession-resistant, why it's recession-resistant is because recessions or downturns generate demand for our product. Typically, on average, about 80% of our customers are what we call residential customers and about 20% are businesses. With residential customers, or for lack of a better term, they what drives demand is uh, transitions in their lives. Uh, selling a house, upsizing or downsizing, moving, 
a death, some type of transitions going on that creates demand for storage. Now, a lot of people just have a lot of stuff, but usually what I still see today is these transitions and the downturn in the economy generate, literally generates demand. Right now in this uh, state, while the stay at home orders are in place all over the country, people are moving back into their houses. They're reorganizing their houses. This, this period of time has actually increased demand for the self-storage project. And for whatever great reason, self-storage is considered an essential business. So we've modified how we're open, but we're open. Right. We're still so, renting units. This episode of Elevate is brought to you by CF Capital, a real estate investment firm formed by myself and my partner, Brian Flaherty, where we invest in multifamily real estate communities across the Southeast United States. If you'd like to learn more about our approach, our mission, our acquisition criteria, and how you can learn more about future opportunities, visit cfcapllc.com. Again, that's cfcapllc.com. One thing you talked about earlier was new investors who are wanting to get into the space or perhaps even, you know, experienced real estate investors that may have been involved in other asset classes that may have now identified the fact that it perhaps is time to pivot in a certain direction. And they're looking for other opportunities. They're looking at multifamily. They're looking at, you know, they're looking at self-storage or they're looking at, you know, mobile home parks or whatever that may be. Um, they're seeing sort of recession resistant qualities. You mentioned a couple of things earlier in terms of how do they relate to success? How do they relate to money in terms of their mindset? But let's, before we get there, because I definitely want to dig into that concept and talk a little bit more about what your philosophies are there, but talk to me about strategy. I mean, in terms of getting your foot in the door as an investor who's pivoting, what are, what are the best sort of tactics to become involved in the space? Well, right now, um, when I'm working with someone new, um, now a lot depends on what their skill sets are and their background. But in general, right now, I think the two main or the two best opportunities are expansions and conversions. So expansion is buying a 25,000 square foot facility and turning it into a 50,000 square foot facility. Uh, conversions are buying a... Um, like we did in Louisville, we bought uh, a, a building on Main Street. It was a 42,000 or 40, yeah, 2,000 square foot building, and we converted it into 60,000 square feet of storage. So, because um, we could go vertical. So, I think those are the two best type. Now, you can do new construction. We've done new construction. It just takes longer to hit profitability. But, um, I think those are the best because it, when you're first getting in an expansion, especially you've got cash flow from day one. Now, REITs or larger institutional players, as a rule, typically like 50,000 square feet or more. And the reason is because when you start getting that size and that kind of income coming in, it's enough income to support one to two people, full-time staff. When you're smaller, you can have staff, but typically, at least for us, it tends to be part-time. What's very interesting is we track this. You try to track everything. We, our company gets about $350,000 of gross income per employee, which is, I mean, think of a restaurant. I wonder what kind of income they get per employee. Wow. That's the other thing that I think is so interesting about self-storage is really the business model. It's different than any other real estate asset class. Maybe you'd talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah, it is. And when we're working with someone, the first thing we do is before we even start looking at deals is like, why are you getting in? What are your goals? What would a win look like? What do you, what do you need? So for example, I, I still raise capital and use other people's money. Our model is I'll raise the equity the equity players get a preferred return while their money's in the deal. And then at the end of four to five years, we refinance the property, give the, the, the investors their money back, 
And then at that point, they're still in the deal, but a conversion happens and we start getting the majority of the cash flow and their preferred return goes away. So um, it gets real simple for us. I'm looking for right now, let's say an eight to 10% average cash on cash return years one through five. And I want to create enough value that I can refinance the project in year five and give them their equity back. So as I'm analyzing deals, it's a yes or a no. And it's a, if it's a no, what, what can I pay to make it a yes? And life starts getting very simple. And with storage, it works so much better than anything else I've ever done because there's just not that many variables that will affect your distributable cash. Other than your loan payment, basically, your NOI is your distributable cash minus your loan payment. And that's it. You don't have to, we put a 12 to 15 cent reserve fund aside and that covers any and all capital expenses. We've never once had to dip into operating cash to pay for a capital expense. We had a $60,000 sign blow down. We had a $10,000 deductible on our insurance policy and the year, the month that we put that new $60,000 sign up, our investors didn't miss a cent of the normal distributions. So as far as the operation of the asset itself, I mean, you're obviously, you got a little bit of a different marketing strategy as, you know, other asset classes do. You've got a little bit of a different sort of communication with your tenants. Talk about that a little bit. And how well, first of all, they're not tenants. We call them tenants, but they're not. There you In go. the storage business, you do not have a landlord-tenant relationship. Legally, you are what's called a warehouseman, and uh, what they're storing is chattel. So what you have is... Uh, um, lien rights on the channel. So if they don't pay, you're exercising lien rights. You don't evict. Um, and as long as you're not touching their stuff, there's no quote bailment involved. So um, you're not even responsible for it. So if your roof leaks, you don't have, and their stuff gets ruined legally, it's not your responsibility unless you take control of it. But uh, mostly you never touch their stuff. They're doing it, self-storage. So, you know, we sell tenant insurance and we can generate income that way. Um, so I just, it's a, it's a great business model uh, for that. So um, what our, again, our model is we're building, we're taking mom and pops and converting them to 50,000. So we typically will have managers on site but you can certainly run, and there's a number of companies that are successfully doing it, running it automated where there is no manager, where you have a kiosk in your website. You know, we, we have kiosks and we have websites and we can do touchless move-ins today. We just chose to have managers to uh, help sell in the lease-up. The Real difference is, in many ways, it's like building or buying a shopping center and then opening the store inside it. It's um, our managers don't relate to themselves as property managers. They're relating to themselves more like they're running a store, like it's a retail item. We're talking about retail sales per move-in with them. We're talking, um, you know, they're accountable for hitting a certain sales number. Um, and rental number. Um, it, it does require some specialized knowledge. It's not complicated, but it's very different. You're running an ongoing business as well as it being a like a retail play. No, I love it. I appreciate you uh, giving us a look in. I wanted to go back to something you said a little bit earlier in terms of getting into the space. Uh, you mentioned you would need to look at either expansions or conversions. So essentially what you're telling me is that I need to have a creative mind. I need to look at a deal and say, all right, well, what's, what's possible here, whether it's an existing self-storage facility or perhaps it's a underutilized or misutilized piece of property to say, all right, well, what can we do with this? Perhaps it's a big box retailer or something else. And what can we do to convert this site? Am I understanding that correctly? 
Exactly. Now, I have a lot of free training and and paid for training. And again, it's not that complicated. There's just some like benchmark numbers. So, for example, I'll look at a facility and if it's the biggest challenge today is knowing if your sub market has demand for more space. Many sub markets are overbuilt right now. What's interesting is you'll hear stuff like Louisville's overbuilt or uh, Idaho is overbuilt. Um, That's interesting, but for the most part, totally irrelevant. Um, The fact that Louisville may be overbuilt may have some upward or down, you know, downward pressure in the case of overbuilding on rental income, but it's, it's meaningless to me. There are great opportunities in Louisville. The thing is, in our portfolio, and this is like with the national average, 85 to 90% of our customers, with us it's 86%, live within 3.2 miles of our facility. So what's going on in the one to five mile radius is very important. Hmm. What's going on on the other side of Louisville is pretty much irrelevant. You know, no one's going to go from Shively or one side of Louisville to the other because they think my doors look cool. They're going to rent where they live and they work. So we know where our customer base is. We can point to it. We know, so we know what the customer base is. It's fairly easy to quantify what the current supply is. And in our business, we're not tracking spendable dollars, you know, how much spendable money in the, in the hair space is there or for auto spending. What we track is square feet per capita. And we know what the per square foot, you know, seven to eight square feet per capita is kind of like a national average. Some markets is more, certain parts of Texas, you know, 10 feet per capita still has demand. But um, so we look at square feet per capita and then we look at can, if we build another 25,000, can we, will there be enough demand for it? So we can run preliminary analysis ourselves. Then we always get a feasibility report and they will really quantify, you know, what even the best unit mix would be. And those feasibility reports, we live and die by them, but man, they're accurate. And the reason much more accurate than any other type of real, of real estate play, simply because, you know, people will drive across Louisville to shop or to work or to live, but they're not the store. So we know where the customers are. So you got to find the first thing is make sure your sub market is, if you're bringing space on that, there's demand for it. Then um, I can look at a layout and real quickly determine how many square feet of additional storage we can add. I can look and see what they're currently getting. It's not complicated, and we teach people how to figure out what the new income would be. In a conversion, typically we're, you know, if I have 16.8 to 17 feet clear height, I can do two stories. Um, uh, Typically you get about 70 to 72% efficiency. So in other words, if it's a 100,000 square foot floor plate, I'm going to get 72,000 square feet of net rentable storage. And running your performas, you know, we run a 10-year cash flow before we put the deal into service. And literally, that's our budgets. Year five budget numbers are what I had on that cash flow. Now, we may switch some of the numbers around, but that NOI, I tell my investors, that's our NOI in year five. And usually we're there very, very close. Um, so that's, that's what I would look at. You got to learn how to see, so I'm, if you're hearing my grandson in the background, <laughs> sorry about that, he's playing. But um, um, you can fairly accurately analyze what the cash flows are going to be because there are so few variables to hit the distributable distributable income and storage. One other thing I'll say I've never seen, and I've been looking, and I'm not saying it's not out there. We, I've just never seen it in 25, 30 years. I've never seen a stabilized self-storage property go to unprofitable. I've never seen it go from 90% to 60. I've seen 
in the recession, on average, storage lost about 6%. I've, I've lost 6 to 10% before when new competitors come in and are very aggressive. But I've never gone from stabilized to not, to not working. I've just never seen it. And I've been looking for it. So there may be one out there in the U.S. I've just never found it. You even mentioned earlier that at times during recessions, you see an increase in occupancy. Is there any time that you would say is perhaps not the best time to be in storage? I mean, obviously, it seems like there's Submarket a by submarket. You want to make sure that you're not bringing a lot of space on to new space to rent, which I've done. I've made every mistake you can make. What happens is you run a performa based on your feasibility report on how fast your new space is going to lease up. And then we were slow to the market in a couple of projects simply because our construction took longer and the um, entitlement process took longer. So by the time we came to the market, the submarket had changed and we were leasing up now with a lot more square footage in that submarket. And what happens is you're absorption rate goes down, you start renting slower. So you get to profitability slower and or your uh, holding costs go up because you're holding it longer. So the real risk is, in my opinion, is during, if, during that lease up period. That's why I like conversions because you can generally get to market very quick and you can get, it's easy to get rent on other parts of the building while you're waiting and expansions because you're getting income while you're waiting. And with the day you, if you bought 25,000 and added another 25, the day you open, you're already at 50% mm-hmm. occupancy and you only have to get 10% to hit profitable. So your downtime usually is very, your negative cash flow is usually, if it's there at all, it's very minimal amount of time. Are you someone who's seriously looking to elevate your life? your business, your real estate portfolio, your cash flow, your deal opportunities, your access to opportunities, your network this year. Well, if that's you, then I invite you to visit coachwithtyler.com because I'm currently opening up a few coaching spots for people like you who want to close the gap from where you are to where you want to be and really, you know, expand that beyond your wildest dreams and explode your business, explode your deal opportunities, explode your vision for what you're looking to create. If that's you, I invite you to visit coachwithtyler.com. I really have to tell you that this is not for everyone. This is only for those who are decisive. They're committed. They're willing to do whatever it takes. They're willing to invest time, energy, and resources into themselves to get to where they want to be and to live a life without limits, to elevate to a life without limits, which is really what we're all about on this show. If that is you, again, I invite you to visit coachwithtyler.com. Again, that's coachwithtyler.com. Talk to me real quick if you're not going to expand or convert a facility, if you're just acquiring a facility and you're wanting to just add value, perhaps there's no room for any additional expansion. I mean, what are some strategies there that you typically employ? Well, we do, it's been a while since I've been able to actually buy one like that, simply because um, since the recovery, uh, and so much money's been chasing it, cap rates have gone down. Mm. Now, on average, we're able to add 6 to 8% additional cash flow simply by managing it correctly. So the, the one really good model I've seen, now we don't use this model, but it would work, is to be looking for, let's say, properties 40,000 square feet or less that currently have managers and be able to reduce or eliminate the management by automating the facility. And that would go straight to the bottom line. Typically what we find with a lot of the mom and pops are they're scared to raise rents. We've averaged a 6% rental increase per year since we've wow. been in the business. Now, Last 12 months, it hadn't been six. It's been closer to three. We perform a 3%, but the reality is we've been averaging up until last year about 6%. That's amazing. Um, it's because you don't have long-term leases. It's a yep. month-to-month deal. And there's, and less go- resili- or there's less resiliency to an increase in rent, it seems, at least from what yeah. I understand. Yeah. yeah. I mean, think about it. If you're paying $100 for a 10 by 10 and I have a 3% price increase, you're going up three bucks. 
Mm-hmm. Is it worth moving out and burning the calories to save three dollars? Typically, no. Right. You know, so we uh, we typically will model at three percent, knowing that on average it's going to be higher, mm-hmm. and we put our expenses in at two and a half. But if you handle, we just with our managers, we keep our eye on about five things, and if you keep your eye on those, you'll have a great business. And one of them is the um, the difference between physical occupancy and economic occupancy. In other words, your receivables. So in a well-run facility, you're at 5% or less. So if I'm at 90%, when we start seeing economic occupancy hit 85, that manager knows that we're going to be having conversations with them. And that's, excuse me, the time to start auctioning. And that's what's so good about it. Typically, we're about, on a stabilized facility, we're 2 to 3% difference between physical and economic. Um, then uh, adding other income streams. So when we bought a facility, um, you might know it, in, it's in Louisville across from the Ford plant out there on the Snyder Freeway, for example. Um, when we bought that, it was generating about grossing about eighty-five thousand a month, and we got it up to about one hundred and twenty a month. And with adding no space to it, it's now down to maybe one five, one ten, because so much new competitions come into that submarket. But what we did is we added uh, a truck rental. Um, we get about sixty thousand dollars a year out of truck rental out there. So a U-Haul truck rental? U-Hauls. Is that what you said? Mm-hmm. You, okay. U-Haul truck. And you, there's others, but that's just who we use. Mm-hmm. And tenant insurance. We now sell tenant insurance in the state of Kentucky where we will have our tenants rent, you know, buy insurance from us for their stuff because our insurance doesn't cover their goods. Yeah. And um, so there's a lot of different profit centers you can add to it. Uh, but it's literally, it's been since maybe 2015, that was about the last time I was able to buy an existing facility and be able to create enough value to do our business model by, you know, refinancing it by year five. We almost always have had to add more space, mm-hmm. but that we're going to see that shift here probably in the next few months or within the next year. So walk me through, because I got number one was the difference between physical and economic occupancy, correct? And you oh, the always, five KPIs? Yeah, give me the, give me the five KPIs here, and then we'll, okay, we'll talk the some mindset. The first KPI that we watch is, is um, occupancy. So we, we set up games, depending on where the facility is and who the manager is, you know, we set up uh, accountability. You, we want to see you at this occupancy or yep. this many customers. The next thing is um, we track retail sales per move-in. So not everybody who moves in buys retail and not everybody who buys retail moves in, but that's a good way to, tr- to track the numbers where we can compare a 100,000 square foot facility to a 20,000 square foot facility. And um, obviously, one's going to sell more retail than the other, but if you index it to move-ins, it's a good number. So, we're always up in the game on retail sales per move-in. Then you can be uh, income per month compared to last year. Um, Then we also just talked about receivables and tenant insurance, which Mm -hmm. are and you can do tenant insurance either by percent of customers that are purchasing it or we give them a number to watch. Mm-hmm. And you watch those numbers. I mean, you keep your eye on those. Um, your business is going to do great. Now, as an owner, we don't have our managers tracking this, but one thing I'm constantly looking at is where am I in relationship to this year's NOI? So what needs to happen, and I might get with a manager or with our, you know, somebody who's accountable on our team with the managers and say, we're behind on our NOI, NOI what can we do? We, we need to move the needle this far, and they'll come up with strategies. 
but you also want to look at how is your, as an owner, what is your income? How fast is that growing compared to your expense growth? Because what happens is over five to 10 years, if you're growing at, in our performance, for example, we have 3% a year rental increase. We have 2.5% expense increase. So when we lay a performa out that way, in year 10, for example, our NOI has gone up enough to create, let's say, a million and a half more value than it was when we started. And that's because that difference is compounding. And if it's going the other way, which we see quite a bit, and these mom and pop owners typically don't track this, that negative growth rate can also compound and bring the value of their asset down. Mm-hmm. So as an owner, we, I, I know every one of our facilities where we are on that. Yeah, I just think it's so important to highlight that, you know, whether you're running self-storage, whether you're running another asset class in real estate, you know, whether it's apartments or what have you, to be a great asset manager is to track KPIs and hold your people accountable towards hitting Mm -hmm. those KPIs and being aware of what's going on and what the levers you can pull to better, you know, operate. And so I I appreciate you giving us a look behind the curtain there. And, you know, Mark, I wanted to... I wanted to talk a little bit more about what you mentioned earlier about, you know, some of the people that you work with, it really kind of starts with their relationship to success, their relationship to money. So I'd love to kind of talk a little bit more about that. I mean, give me some more insight of sort of the range of relationships that you've seen folks have with success and with wealth. Well, it's, it's real interesting. I've learned that I can have two people who learn the exact same thing and look literally at the exact same facility and one will be successful and one won't. And it, I've now I'm, this is more anecdotal, but I really think about 80% or more of your success is a function of psychology. It's a function of how you think rather than what you know or what you do. Cause wh- how you think, creates who you are and who you are will determine the actions who you are determines how the world occurs to you and depending on how the world occurs that will govern what actions you take that even governs what's possible for you certain people can't can't even see something if if they have a certain mindset where someone else will be able to see opportunity all over the place. So the very first thing I've realized is that um, with the people I work with, when I'm interviewing them, I'm listening for something. And one of the first things I listen for is, do they have a mindset like, I can do this? Um, very often in life, you have to take you have to be able to take action even though you don't know exactly every part of the process. So I can remember, for example, when I got in the real estate business, I watched and learned a listing presentation. You know, putting a housewife in my car scared me to death. (laughs) But I saw a listing presentation to a for sale by owner. I thought, now I can do that. So I watched this listing presentation, took notes, and I practiced And then the next day I went out on my first FISBO call and did the listing presentation and the guy said he'd list with me. So I forgot to ask how you fill a listing out. But (laughs) I, so I didn't know what to put in the blanks at the time, but I had the guy just sign the listing. I wouldn't do this today, but I had the guy just sign the listing. I said, I'll take this back and have my broker fill it out. So I'm not saying you have to be that crazy, but I'm listening for, can a person take action without knowing everything? And um, then, or I'm listening for a, a belief system, something like, if one person can do it, then I can probably do it. Mm-hmm. Um, because you'd be surprised, most people don't have that. Absolutely. Most people have uh, very negative conversations going on about what's possible for them. And we, Get it honestly. We're born into it. These are the conversations that are going on that we're born into. And our parents don't realize they're giving it to us. But um, 
The main thing is, is somebody responsible for how they're thinking and what they think. I can remember early, gosh, it was in the early 80s, I got into meditation. Mm -hmm. And it used to be considered just like really bizarre. I can remember my broker telling me, don't tell people you meditate. They'll think you're too (laughs) weird. And nobody in the business world meditated. It was like, too soft, too airy fairy. And now in the, you know, in the world of uh, entrepreneurship, meditation's like taught. And so, but I've been a a meditator for years, early eighties. And what I've learned over the time from meditation is that I just have, just because I have a thought doesn't mean it's real. I, I have meditation allows you to have space from your own thoughts. I can remember one yoga teacher I've had told me, uh, enlightened people don't believe what they think. They just get that they're thoughts. So by having space from your thinking, when you have a negative thought or a limiting thought, it's you're able to identify it. And we actually look and welcome those because that's your opportunity to figure out what's your, well, I still have a limiting belief here. What is it? Where'd that thought come from? Where else does it show up? And as an entrepreneur, you're constantly looking for what are the, because we work on ourselves first, then we go expand our business. And um, before I take something big on, if I'm, when we started the management company for our storage facilities, it was like, okay, what's the limiting beliefs that I have around starting another company? Um, where, what do I need to transform in myself? to be able to ensure success for the people that I partner with and the people we hire. And it's a great life. I mean, to be able to do that and continually take yourself to the next level and be able to create a vision and have other people get that vision and give you money and give you their life to work. You know, they they take a career in what you've, the vision you've created. I mean, how lucky is that? I mean, I'm at the point where we don't, I don't have to work, but what would I do? My hobby would, I don't have a hobby that's as interesting and exciting as creating businesses and going to the next level. So, yeah. And there's always another level too. I mean, that's the exciting thing is that every human being who's listening to this conversation knows that there's another level for them, no matter where they are on the journey. And the other thing too, that I just wanted to mention is, you know, if you think you can't, well, guess what? It's, it's, it's already done. You, you won't. can't, yep, you will you not. Can't. So you've got to start there with the belief that anything is possible. And then, you know what, forget the how sometimes, you know, we're going to talk strategy. You're going to bring people into your world who are going to help you implement tactics. You know, you're going to bring folks like Mark into your world to help you sort of manage these KPIs that we were talking about earlier. But, you know, don't get so overwhelmed and worry about the how. Just take action. And then also, you know, be aware of what's going on in your inner voice. You know, observe that. Put it out on paper. You know, what is my limiting belief about X, Y, and Z? You know, is this real? Do I have to identify with that? I just think it's so valuable. Uh, everything you're talking about here. And obviously we can see the compound effect of, you know, the work that you've done on yourself since kind of the mid eighties there. And I'm sure even beyond that, but uh, that's, it's super powerful. Is there anything else that you'd say there about how you well, work? On I, have, I have uh, on my, uh, in my blog or YouTube channel, I'll, I'll group trainings kind of together. And I have a training on the five, what I call the five mindsets. And I try to not just give talk philosophy, but we have been that there are some very specific steps on identifying what limiting belief you may have and what to do with it and how to transform it. So I'm always trying to create actionable steps around it. But you're exactly right. Focus, you start there. And then you've got to learn what there is to do and what the KPIs are and how to measure them. But if you're doing that on top of a a disempowering belief, doesn't really matter. And the thing is, I'm not looking for the truth. I, I don't care what's true. I care what empowers me. And by, uh, finding, by creating that, this is a disempowering belief, and it is because it stops me. It limits what's possible by identifying what they are and constantly looking for them and hunting for them. Um, 
by taking responsibility for that, now I can transform that and something is possible for me or our companies that wasn't possible before. I remember a first storage deal I did. I knew how to find property. I knew how to analyze property. I just didn't have any money and I'd never raised any money, but I thought, well, I can do it. If somebody else can do it, I can do it too because I know a good deal when I see it. And I've learned the art and the science of raising money, but I didn't have a, philosophy, a disempowering belief at that time that I don't know people with money. And I just don't know what I'm doing, but I know I can do it and figured yeah. it out. I love it. I love it. Anything is possible, especially if you tell yourself that it is. I know that's for sure. I mean, it's interesting. I had uh, the other day, I had a reminder on my phone. It was a picture that I took from two years ago and it was a picture of my whiteboard and had all my goals on it and all the things I was working on. And it's amazing because 95% of the things came true. It's absolutely amazing. It is. And there are laws at work. I don't want to get too into it at this moment, but I really believe that there are laws at work that you can tap into and utilize that are just like the physical laws. And yep. um, that's the, and that's, in my opinion, the source of people's success. You're, you can be as successful in life as your thoughts and your mind allow you to be. And that's the beautiful part of being a human being is because there's no limit on it. And that's literally why I keep on working because who I get to be as I grow is, way more exciting than just playing golf. Yeah. Well, this is an absolutely exciting uh, conversation because of the fact that it never has to end as well, right? You know, we can continue to grow. We can continue to give to other people and contribute to others' growth. So I think it's exciting. That's one of the reasons. I mean, really, it's the sole reason why I do this show. So I appreciate you sharing that. I want to transition into our rapid fire section. We call it the rare air questionnaire. And obviously, we're entering rare air uh, here with this conversation and everything that we've talked about, Mark, but I'd love to know, um, you know, if you were to point to two or three of the most impactful books that you've ever read, what would those be and why? Well, Think and Grow Rich transformed my life when I read it. Um, and um, I give that to every kid that's graduating from high school that's in my life. Most of them don't read it till much later in life. Um, there's also a book called The Science of Getting Rich that was written in before that, that made a huge difference in my life. And third book called Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. That's what got me into meditation. Awesome. We'll have to look up, I'll have to look up the third one. I've definitely read the first two, but uh, we'll put links there in the show notes of these books. And, you know, if you've, if you haven't read the science of getting rich and, and think and grow rich, I can definitely attest to the fact that they're absolutely transformative. And I, I know I revisit think and grow rich every single year myself mm-hmm. uh, as one that I need to remind myself how powerful this mind that we have, that we're so blessed to have here. Um, Aside from our discussion today, what would you say the biggest way that you elevate your life on a daily basis would be, Mark? Um, Meditation. I I meditate usually two to three times a day, definitely every morning. Um, And by putting my attention and my energy on things that I can, can have an influence on and not on things that I don't. Like I've, I limit myself, usually I watch no news on TV or radio, but today with the, what we're in right now with the COVID-19, I limit it to 15 minutes a day because I want to learn what I can put my energy on that will impact something with me, but I'm not going to waste a lot of time on things that I can't control. Yeah, that's huge. I think we all need to guard the gates of our mind, right? You know, exactly. not, only, not only can we be aware of what's going on in our mind by observing the thoughts, but then also not allowing negative beliefs to come in and, and take root. So yeah. very, very valuable stuff there. What's the biggest way that you elevate others around you, Mark? Uh, by relating to them as, as bigger than they are. Um, I see, I see most people that are definitely people in my life, but I relate to them as the possibility they are act, rather than, you know, who they think they are, or what they're up to. Like I literally create my wife new every day. Um, I create her as a mysterious woman that I don't know. 
And so every day I'm, I'm a little surprised at some of the stuff that happens. But I've learned that if you relate to people as bigger than they are, that they'll step into that in most cases. And that's employees and everybody. I'm, I mean, like, you know, my business partners, you know, in Charlotte, I mean, mm-hmm. she's amazing. And I, and she says I've taught her a lot, but I really haven't. What I've done is just relate to her a particular way. Uh, our employees, uh, it's amazing the ownership employees will take. And it's just because you relate to them as who they can be and the possibility they are. And so just plus, for- it's a very rewarding way to be with people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so give me a, just an example. I mean, you're projecting to them what you see as their potential or, or how do you do that? Well, uh, my grandson's over there playing. I don't know if you've heard him, but I can hear him with, the, <laughs> with this mic and these headphones on. But I, you know, he, he relates to himself sometimes like he doesn't do well in school. Mm. Well, I could care less what his damn grades are in school. <laughs> this kid is an amazing kid. The ability, I mean, what he, what he can create in his imagination is unlimited. I mean, he can he's created movies about, you know, his family and us. And so I just relate to him as one of the smartest people that I've ever seen and talk to him that way. And if I'm with him and, you know, he doesn't read as well, he's with dyslexia. So we don't like spend a lot of time on stuff he's not good at. We spend time on stuff he's awesome at. And he, I think he appreciates it. That's awesome. And I know you do that even for me. I mean, you always, every time I talk to you, you tell me how amazing I am and you always make me feel good about myself, which I really appreciate. And it's, it's a reminder for all of us, you know, what can we do to project into someone else and allow them to understand their potential and, and how that's unlimited as well. We all have a duty to do that. So Mark, you've, you've certainly done that for myself, for all of our listeners today. Is there any parting thoughts or words of wisdom that you'd leave Elevate Nation with? Well, it's your, I believe we're only limited in life by what uh, we create, the limitations we create for ourselves. Um, it, you can always take it to the next level and that's where the juice is. That gap between where you see yourself going and where you are now. I mean, that's where my self-expression is right now is in that gap. And that gap is keeps getting bigger and bigger and it's just exciting. No, it's, um, and you've done a great job with your career, by the way. I'm just real impressed with what you've done and how you go out and you give so provide so much to your client base through this and the emails you send out and the training you give. You give that was one of the principles in Think and Grow Rich, give more than you receive. And you certainly have done that. And I really acknowledge you for the career you've got going. It's just, it's inspiring. Oh, well, thank you. And I appreciate that. And it certainly helps to be surrounded with folks like yourself. And uh, I acknowledge everything that you do and you give and you provide to other people as well. And thank you so much for giving so much wisdom and so much knowledge and so much inspiration today. Uh, Mark, I really, really appreciate it. Tell the listeners how they can uh, learn more about what you do and become engaged with you. Uh, probably the best way is through the website, creating wealth through selfstorage.com. That's where I have the free training on there, you know, hundreds of episodes. Uh, there's also links to some you know, deeper training if you want it. And there's a YouTube channel, same name, Creating Wealth Through Self-Storage. I think I've got 250 episodes on there at the time. Um, And the book, Creating Wealth Through Self-Storage. Or you can just reach out to me at mark at helmproperties.com. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Mark, appreciate that. And, and Elevate Nation, I really appreciate everybody tuning in. I encourage you to re-listen to the show because not only is there a lot of strategy here, there's a lot of tactics that you can employ, you can consider for perhaps your own pivot or perhaps even the growth of your own business. But there's a lot that you can apply today in terms of your psychology, in terms of how do you elevate others? How do you elevate your life? And how do you take your own life, your own business to the next level? Because as we've mentioned time and time again on this episode, there's always another level. And I encourage you to take notes. You know, what are your top three distinctions? What are you going to apply to your business 
to your life immediately? And what are you going to share with someone else? Because as we mentioned, I mean, the teacher is who learns the most. How are you going to share and pay this information forward and help someone else apply and reach their own next level and realize that anything is possible uh, in their own life? And, and until then, I encourage you to take massive action on everything you're doing. Realize that anything is possible as long as you set your mind to it. And so until that time, Mark, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Absolutely. Elevate Nation. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Elevate. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and pay it forward by sharing with a friend. Most importantly, take this opportunity to elevate your results by taking immediate action on what you learned. For more, visit elevatepod.com.